experience the wonder. You refer to the prophecy of the one who will bring balance to the force. The excitement. You believe it's this boy? The force is unusually strong with him. The adventure. At last, we will reveal ourselves to the Jedi. At last, we will have revenge. Oh, my. Experience Star Wars like never before. Whoa! Just hang on! Wipe them out. All of them. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to Inside the Sequel. You know what this podcast is. It's the hub for those who love sequel movies and talking about them and sharing why they don't get enough love or attention and we come on to praise them. However, it is the month of November and much like last year, we thought we would run it back because this is the time of year where people start binging, I feel like, franchises. And for me and uh, my co-host... It's definitely the time where we start binging Star Wars. So it's the official Star Wars member um, on this podcast season. And I'm your host, Chris, as always. And of course, I have my co-host to go through and navigate Star Wars, the prequel films, through the whole month of November. I have my buddy from the Cobwebs podcast. I have Daniel Epler. Daniel, how are you today, my man? At last, we will reveal ourselves to the prequel haters. At last, <laughs> we will have our revenge. Um, tasteful, tasteful. It's one of the only quotes he has in the whole movie. I think he has two lines, and that's his most famous line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good point, good point. Uh, and then, yeah, Darth Maul. I mean, do you remember when Phantom Menace was, like, the biggest thing and Darth Maul was, like, the, like, face of the 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 first movie when it was coming out, like, on the merchandising? I do, kind of. So I was six years old when the Phantom Menace came out. And the only thing I can remember about my Phantom Menace hype was Darth Maul. Mm -hmm. And I remember like having merch with Darth Maul on it and being really into him. Um, I don't remember my reaction to any other character. And the only thing I, so I didn't like Phantom Menace when it first came out, but I was six years old. So don't put much stock in my opinion. Um, And the only thing I can remember for why I didn't like it is there's not really that much Darth Maul and he doesn't actually do very much. And that was like my main basis for not liking Phantom Menace. He's basically a, uh, the prequel Boba Fett in a way where he just stands around and looks really cool. Well, he's, it, this is the thing is I went into it expecting Darth Maul as the villain. And I think a lot of people do. I think a lot of people still think Darth Maul is the villain in this movie, um, but he's really the heavy uh, Darth Sidious is the villain of the movie. And then Darth Maul is his heavy. Uh, he's like, um, Dave Batista inspector, you know, <laughs> I, I know you don't watch James Bond movies. That was probably a bad reference, but that's what Darth Maul is. Um, and then he becomes much more of a character in supplemental material after this movie. Mm. It's weird. Cause you said the villain is Darth Sidious, but for me, the villain of this movie is definitely like trade negotiations and the failure of a Republic in government. That that's true. And that that's really the main conflict of the movie. You know what should, should we just talk about that, about how this movie is about trade disputes? Cause I know a lot of people have beef with that. Yeah, I think we should. Cause you know what? Um, I think the negotiations have to be short with the listeners because I'm a big fan of these prequel movies and I know you are too. And I feel like, like last year when we did the sequel movies, I feel like other than revenge of the Sith, most of the people cast out the prequel movies. 
Yeah, you know, I think when people heard there was going to be another, a second Star Wars trilogy, they were all like, this is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, the Disney basically had to be like Viceroy Gunry, like when he's talking to Queen Amadala. He's like, no, I think you are mistaken. I'm sure everything we've done is perfectly legal through the Senate. I love, uh, that's one of my favorite things when uh, one of them's like, is that legal? And Darth Sidious goes, I will make Make it it legal. legal. Yeah. It's definitely a prequel to, ah, there you go, a prequel to when he says, I am the Senate. That's true. That's true. He has so many good lines. We're going to talk about Palpatine a lot in this series, and I'm Mm -hmm. very excited for that. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, this is the thing. This movie I like a lot, too. I think it gets better on rewatch every time because... It's just like an easy movie to put in the background because it's such an adventure movie. You get so many. It's the first movie in the in the trilogy, and it introduces so many characters. But it's still like an adventure movie, uh, and I think that's what works for me because like there's so many locations, there's so many different characters. But also like if you turn it, turn it on in the background, there's very interesting dialogue going on. And I really enjoy that. There's not maybe as much spectacle as other Star Wars movies like Force Awakens. There's so much like you know highs in that movie with like the spectacles, like the Millennium Falcon, you know, and and Jakku scenes, um, the escape of the Death Star, you know, all this like really crazy like moments. In this movie, it's very much like action scene, but then it's talking and then like you know bouncing around, uh, and it's like that's why I really like this movie because it's like I know about it. One, I've seen it so many freaking times, but it's like. I like to hear all these characters talk with each other, explain things, and set things up for the next movies. Um, I don't know. I don't think a lot of the Star Wars movies do that. Well, you're right in that it absolutely is a rousing adventure movie. And I I thought about rewatching it, how a lot of people criticize it for being about politics and trade disputes and it's boring, blah, blah, blah. I clocked it, including the 20th Century Fox thing and the opening crawl and everything. It takes five minutes for Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan to bust out their lightsabers and start fighting battle droids. Mm-hmm. Five minutes. Like, what What did you need? Like, was that was that too much for you? I don't know. I um, I um So, like I said, I didn't like it when I was six. Um, I came to like it as an adult. I know a lot of people don't like it. For a while, I understood why people don't like it. I, I feel like I've lost that ability by now, and I'm rewatching <laughs> it now, and I'm like what on earth do people not like about this? Like, okay, you think Jar Jar is annoying, but I really think it's a really fun, satisfying Star Wars experience that gives you pretty much everything people want out of Star Wars. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think more people need to be mindful of their of their feelings with the Star Wars movie, you know, the patience of a Jedi in this movie, because it's like, I think it, you know, it's funny. I watched this movie, um, for this recording, uh, because you know, why not? And then I also watched half of it through a commentary that's on my Blu-ray for it. And, uh, people like the, the directors and the producers were, were, were talking about like the test screenings during the opening crawl and stuff. And, you know, the studio execs were very nervous about it because there wasn't a lot of reaction to the opening crawl and a lot of like the beginning. Cause like, I guess, when the first movie was coming out, and maybe people have this feeling too, and the producer said it too, Crawl is his last name. He was talking about how he already felt an expectation in the opening title crawl with these test screenings and with the pressure from studio execs because they're like, there wasn't any cheering in the audience or clapping or anything like that until R2-D2 shows up, which is like 30 minutes into the movie. Um, no, R2-D2 comes in pretty soon because he's on the back of 
of Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan ship. I think that's R2-D2. Well, when they're escaping Naboo. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like 25 minutes into the movie, but it's like, you know, I remember going to Force Awakens and all the movies, every title crawl, it's a it's a, a rousing applause. It's a, an excitement of sorts. And it's like, I feel like this movie suffers from the way of expectation because it's episode one after how many years of no Star Wars. And I think people still kind of carry that chip uh, on their shoulder with this movie. And I think it's really unwarranted because it's like... I don't, Lucas, when you talk, like you hear him on the commentary, he loves this movie. He loves talking about it. There's so much stuff that's going on in the background they have people had no idea about, and it's like, yeah, it's one of those movies where people just can't like not criticize it because it has Episode One in front of it or after it. Well, I can't speak too much to people's expectations at the time because, like I said, I was six years old. But I would imagine that when a lot of people think I'm going to watch a prequel to the Star Wars trilogy, the only Star Wars trilogy at that time, um, I'm going to see Anakin become Darth Vader and I'm going to see him in Obi-Wan fight and I'm going to see Palpatine or as they only knew him at the time, the Emperor take mm -hmm. over. And and that's not what George Lucas is interested in doing right away. He's very much table setting in this movie and he wants to do all that over the course of three movies. And I'll just say right now, I really like that this movie, a lot of this movie is about politics. I like the trade dispute stuff because I think it would have been the easy route for George Lucas to just have, all right, here's the emperor. He's this big bad guy and he wants to rule the world. So he's going to get an army <laughs> together and they're going to have a big star war. Um, <laughs> but he does it in a much slower, more interesting and intelligent way. And that ultimately uh, what Palpatine is doing in this movie is just causing a conflict to start a war so that Naboo will need to react to it faster than he knows the Senate will be willing to react to it so he can cause uh, distrust in the Supreme Chancellor and therefore move in to get nominated to be Chancellor himself. And then, as he says, I think we'll get a strong sympathy vote because it's our planet in peril. Um, and it all happens just as he wants it to. And that's ultimately the first step that he takes towards becoming the ultimate emperor. And uh, and I like that it is a, it is a slower build and that uh, George Lucas doesn't blow his wad right away in one movie. <laughs> yeah, it feels like Ron DeSantis's approach to the presidential election in some way. So if you hear a trade dispute in Florida, I'm going to start looking at him. <laughs> I can't really speak to that too much, but no. I, I do know there are some trade disputes going on. <laughs> Uh, um, but, you know, yeah, you're totally right. I, I think it's a smart way to build it up. Uh, I think when he wrote the script, he already had in place how he wanted the transformation of young Anakin to become Darth Vader. And he does, but he, his focus isn't just on Anakin, it's in all these characters. And you think about the prequel movies, how much reference there is to the prequels before the prequels even existed. And he has to bring that into life and display all that stuff. I mean, it's definitely not a easy thing to do especially when it's the world of star wars you know um and when it opens up i think people i think i mean i love the opening to this movie because you get your you know your 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 main like stars in the very beginning with ewan mcgregor and um liam neeson but then you see like these battleships right in the front and it's like these things look amazing compared to what we last saw in episodes you know six um, like with the Trade Federation and all these ships in the background and all that technical aspects of it in 1999. It's like, holy crap, like this movie on its own already is looking really good. And I would think just the spectacle and special effects of this movie for its time would be like more 
of enough eye candy to like you know make people think wow star wars is like this big blockbuster big money making machine that can do these kind of really cool special effects that nobody else is kind of doing um and i can't remember if in 1999 um if vfx and like all these like special effects and cgi was such a big thing at the time oh man that that's one thing that i don't think everybody realizes about george lucas is one of the most important things to him is to be a pioneer for special effects and say what you will about some of the cgi in this movie it has not all dated perfectly Mm -hmm. it's 1999 um it's extremely revolutionary what george lucas is doing in this movie um i know the cgi on jar jar binks is one of the things that has dated not great in this movie um but nothing like that had really ever been done before it's a completely cgi motion capture character and 1999 is really early for that. If you like Gollum and Lord of the Rings movies, if you like Thanos and the MCU, you got to throw some appreciation to George Lucas for pioneering all that kind of technology with Jar Jar. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really like the look of this movie. Not all the CGI, again, has dated well. But right. um, Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith will become much more green screen heavy. And Phantom Menace is much less so. Phantom Menace looks much more like the special edition additions of the original trilogy and that it's a lot of real sets it's a lot of practical stuff but then you've got a lot of cgi creatures and stuff populating around Mm -hmm. and that was a really good balance i think and we'll talk about the look of the next two movies because it's different but this one looks really good i think yeah that's a good point it just feels different when you're watching it too it feels like a almost like an old movie but it's i mean it is 99 so it's not you know but it, it feels like it's part of the original trilogy, like you said. I totally agree. I've always felt like that's, that movie on its own feels like a mi- a mixing blend of the original trilogy and like what would the prequel movies end up becoming in some ways. Um, also, what I love about this movie, when it first starts, it satisfies the fans of the old trilogy and then it kind of gives like, you know, that star power that Star Wars now has. Like you have a Liam Neeson um, actor playing a new character, and then you have uh, Ewan McGregor um, playing an old favorite in Old Ben when he's young, and I think that satisfies like right off the bat, the beginning for fans of like the old stuff and like fans who are excited for this new era of Star Wars, and you get like actors who are relatively known, like Ewan McGregor. I think he did like transpotting before this movie, um, but I Liam, think you're ne- right. yeah, and then you got Liam Neeson who did some really good early dramas in the '90s, like Nell and a few other films. Schindler's List. Schindler's List. There you go. And uh, you know, it's like wow, there's some star power already in this movie, and I think that's kind of exciting in '99 when you're a Star Wars fan. You know, you're like whoa, like there's some, you know, at the time, like the original trilogy cast weren't that well known. Um, like Mark Hamill was relatively unknown, and such. And it's like I feel like. When you watch, when I watch this movie, I get that kind of appreci- that appreciation, like you know, like this is like what three movies and like fandom has like brought into fruition is like we get a new trilogy with all that, and you kind of can't help but think about like the sequel trilogy kind of doing something similar in that way too, where you get some relatively unknowns, but then you get some super well known, um, you know, box office actors in that. Yeah, like the the, fir- the very first Star Wars, they get their star power in with their old guys, with their mm-hmm. Alec Guinness and your Peter yep. Cushing. Um, you're right. It, Liam Neeson brings uh, a definitely in a element of prestige to this. I heard he signed on to the movie before he even read the script. They were like, you want to be in a Star Wars movie? And he's like, uh, yes, I want to be in a Star Wars movie. Where do I sign? 
Um, and he's one of the reasons that I love this movie and I rank this movie pretty high on my Star Wars ranking, as people will know if they listen to our fourth Star Wars member episode last year. Mm -hmm. um, I love Qui-Gon Jinn. I think it probably would have been, again, like the more conventional choice that George Lucas could have taken to make Qui-Gon Jinn like the older, um, more traditional kind of stick in the mud character, the straight man or whatever, and to make Obi-Wan the maverick or the cool guy and the badass because Obi-Wan's the character we know. And I love that really Qui-Gon is the maverick character and Obi-Wan is like the older stick in the mud character, even though he's the Padawan. Mm -hmm. um, Obi-Wan is kind of a comedy relief character. He's kind of like, a, I don't think we should be doing this like the whole time, <laughs> the more traditional, let's follow the rules, which was a great idea because that way his character doesn't have to change in the next couple of movies. Like he continues to be like the old man. Mm -hmm. um, and Ewan McGregor, we just, we got to pause and we got to give so much appreciation to Ewan McGregor because Alec Guinness, we love him as Obi-Wan. He's great. But Ewan McGregor is the reason that Obi-Wan is such a special character now. And like, he's the reason that Obi-Wan is the favorite character of so many Star Wars fans. He took this character. He didn't drag. He didn't really change the character that much. He didn't deviate big time from what Alec Guinness did. Um, but he completely makes the character his own. And even people who hate the prequels love Ewan McGregor. Everybody mm -hmm. loves Ewan McGregor. And we we're we're now recording this um, a few months after the Obi-Wan series has ended. And it's just so special to see him back as that character. I love him so much. And this isn't the movie where he shines the most yet. He will later on much more, but still love you and McGregor. He's the best. Yeah. And you see those acting chops in this movie too, especially in the, the third act near the end of the movie with his fight with Maul, which like, I think is like awesome, like nonverbal acting out of him. Um, he has like a really good ability to like show and display emotion um, without saying anything like when they're fighting, you know, the battle droids, which one in themselves, if in, you know, I remember see, I, I don't remember seeing this movie because I was a little kid too. Um, but you know, him like twirling his lightsaber around and having like a little smirk on his face when he's chopping down battle droids, you know, and having those facial expressions, like he's almost enjoying it in a way. Um, I think showed like such promise with him in these movies and like throughout the whole trilogy, he's just, you know, having smirks having little jokes and like his face has so much you know and uh, i think that's super awesome because like you he's very more expressive than i feel like qui-gon is is very stoic but the way words he say, says are like very different uh, and i think that's a really good yin and yang between the two uh, actors um and plus like it, it's it automatically sets the tone of what the prequels are it's all about jedi because in the original trilogy we don't really know what Jedi are until Ben starts talking about it. And it's just like this hokey old religion, like Han Solo says. Right. And in this movie, you just see like, they're, you know, they're mowing down things uh, and you know, they're, they're the ambassadors, but you know, it's like they're armed to the teeth. No wonder the gun, get, not a gun, vice, vice gunnery is like freaking out because it's like the Republic is setting like these, you know, almost invincible people to come and satisfy this trade negotiation. Uh, it's just like a lot of really good, um, storytelling without actually putting it like subconsciously you have to start thinking about these things and you're like wow like that's pretty aggressive and then you think about this the movies the approach is like it's not going to be just spaceships and fighting it's going to be like these guys with laser swords now just like all involved in the stories and I think that's really cool 
Yeah, and I love that Anakin uses the term laser sword in this because mm -hmm. people threw a fit and when Last Jedi came out that Mark Hamill said laser sword and it's like, I, he's not the first one to say that. It's been in the franchise before. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, even people who don't like the prequels, you've got to admit how much we have come to love about Star Wars comes from the prequels. Yes. They bring almost just as much new stuff to the table as the original trilogy does, which is so bold. Like, this is so not a nostalgia lap of a of a trilogy mm -hmm. like it builds so much new stuff and 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 you're right in the original trilogy we don't really know that much about the jedi because there's no structure for the jedi luke is just kind of figuring out as he goes with a little bit of guidance from obi-wan and yoda along the way but this is where there's actual structure of what the jedi are and and we get to see so much more of them. So yeah, the prequels bring so much to the table um, that all of us love. You got to appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Also, I would say this movie contends very well with like the original trilogy in terms of merchandising. Because when you talk about Star Wars, you can't stop talking about the merchandise. I remember this movie plastered everywhere. You see like those like little cups from the movie theaters with like their heads on there. You had like coin banks of like the three Jedi and, or the Sith and the Jedi fighting. You put coins in there. They start like moving around and fighting. The action figures were super cool and it's like i don't know why but phantom menace is always the movie besides like the original trilogy where i think about the merchandising being so heavy and successful and excessive but like in the best ways possible you know like it just like yeah like i know people complain about like jar jar and stuff is like well star wars is here to make fucking money and they created these characters that like you want to take home and have his set pieces and stuff like that so you would have been three years old when this movie came out. Do you remember when you first saw it? Did your parents take you to the theater that early or did you catch it at home? So the story my mom and dad, I was telling Charlie as we were watching it. Um, the story my mom and dad always say when I talk about Star Wars is like, I'll always remember you being a little three-year-old kid crying and crying because we went to a theater that was inside a mall. Um, to go see it and my dad was like you kept crying and crying because you wanted to see the star wars movie um and you wouldn't shut up and then when we finally sit down to watch the movie as soon as the title the crawl goes you fall asleep <laughs> and, you were like trade negotiations i'm out <laughs> right uh and then you know i had the vhs and i watched it so much as a kid it's one of the movies where i always reenacted scenes with my brother with our toy lightsabers they weren't the real fancy ones yet where like you push the button they light up you know they were just like the ones you just like, people can't see but you like swing it and then like the blade comes out when you push the button oh and we yeah would, yeah we would have those and they had little hilts that you could put on your belt too they were really good um and we would just reenact the scenes um and that's why i love phantom menace because there's like a lot of lightsaber scenes in this movie and they're just mowing down like droids um but yeah, that's why Phantom Menace always is kind of like that little bit of like appreciation for it because it's like the movie I grew up with the most. Yeah, it's it has so many great action set pieces, which is why I don't get it when people accuse it of being boring. Um, I know also people criticize like the dialogue for being kind of stilted or lifeless or blah, blah, blah. Again, like I don't get it. Yeah, because I I love I think Liam Neeson carries it so much for me. I love him. Qui-Gon is one of my favorite Star Wars characters. I think Qui-Gon is kind of the ultimate example of what a Jedi should be. And I think his death in this movie is hugely instrumental towards how the Jedi will decline and, yeah. and towards uh, Anakin Skywalker's downfall. Because I don't know if Anakin Skywalker falls if Qui-Gon trains him. 
um, which is nothing against Obi-Wan, but we'll probably talk about it more in Attack of the Clones, but they might just be too close in age and too close of equals. Um, but Qui-Gon is so wise and he goes against the Jedi a lot in this movie and he butts heads with the council. He's not mm -hmm. on the Jedi council nope. um, because he is so much about living in the moment and listening to the living force. He's not as much about tradition and rules and things like that. He's much more about following the force as you feel like it leads you. And, um, and he always, I feel like he always leads with compassion in a way that some of the other Jedi in this movie, like Yoda and Mace Windu are much more leading with um, just sort of safety and like, we're, we're not going to take risks. We're just going to, you know, follow what we're doing already. And we're just going to stick to that. Um, where Qui-Gon is a much more um, compassionate person, I think. Mm -hmm. And he's just such a badass. He's so cool. Like the stoicism works for me so well. Cause it's Liam Neeson and he's always interesting. Mm -hmm. He looks awesome with the green lightsaber. Yep. Um, he's one of my favorite star Wars characters. He's yeah. The best. And I think George Lucas really likes Qui-Gon because he makes him unlike all the other Jedi look like a traditional Japanese samurai of sorts, which is his inspiration for the Jedi. And yes. he has like a very Eastern um, Asian influence in his appearance. Yeah, he kind of has like a Toshiro Mifune from, mm -hmm. from a Kurosawa kind yep. of an energy. Yeah, and the way he talks too. And I think we'll, we'll definitely talk about all through it, but we def this movie is very pragmatic with it um, about showing the Jedi as being a problem but disguised as like an ally for Anakin and for, you know, the good side, the good versus evil. Um, but they're really more of like uh, a roadblock and a stubborn roadblock for a lot of good people in this movie, because like you said, Qui-Gon is, you know, very progressive and very, very forward thinking and trying to, you know, get the Jedi to do something. Cause really most of this movie, they don't do anything. And for his wise and being on this council, um, they, they're very stubborn and they, you know what I mean? Cause it's like Obi, they're all talking about being in bed in tradition and, and doing like what they need to do to keep the council going and, you know, keep facilitating peace. But it's like, if you want to be traditional, there's no one more traditional than Qui-Gon because he's believing in a prophecy that these Jedi masters aren't really believing in and taking serious. Cause they're constantly doubting him with Anakin being the chosen one. But it's like, this is like your prophecy for your whole order. Wouldn't you be excited? It kind of gives, and I know people talk about like space Jesus and like the religious allegories of Phantom Menace um, and Anakin in general, but it's like the Pharisees denying Jesus, the Messiah, which, you know, whatever, but it, and if you, know, <laughs> you want to, you know, whatever, <laughs> bring like religion into it. It's like, it's very, very eerily similar in that approach. And it's what I think Qui-Gon stands out so much as well is because of that being, it feels like he's calling out the Jedi being like, like you fucking idiots. Like, you know, we finally have it in front of us and you're not going to believe it. And that's why he's just like so cunning and smart because I love when he's in the council where he's like, I'm going to just take him as my Padawan then. Obi-Wan's ready. Fuck you guys. Like I have like my loopholes. He's like that employee that like, isn't the boss but like everyone listens to him like he's the boss and like if you threaten to fire him he's like all right well i'm just gonna quit that and you know and all these other things and it's like ah damn i can't really like get rid of him um because it feels like they don't want him around because i think he was offered a jedi council position he refused which you know kudos to him there um because i feel like obi-wan or not obi-wan qui-gon knows the jedi's place isn't just sitting in a chamber pondering the whole time yeah the job of the jedi is to be out in the natural world and solving Help problems people. yeah yeah 
Yeah, and I think it's it's significant that we learn in Attack of the Clones that his master was Dooku before mm -hmm. he uh, left the Jedi Order. Be it it kind of tells me that Qui-Gon wasn't really instilled with a reverence and respect for the Jedi Council because Dooku didn't have it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and he doesn't take them that seriously because when the Jedi Council tells him no about training Anakin, he, there's no hesitation. He's just like, well, okay, I'll just do it myself. Right. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, he, there's this, I'm sorry to already invoke supplemental material of Star Wars, but there's a book called Master and Apprentice, which is about Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan before mm -hmm. this movie. And it's still in canon because it only came out a few years ago. Um, it's not Legends. And it gets into how Qui-Gon is like a scholar of Jedi history, and he's more uh, reverential of the more, um, the old mystical side of the Jedi more than like the sort of bureau bureaucratic side of the Jedi where the Jedi mm -hmm. is at this point. And he's very into ancient prophecies, whereas a lot of other Jedi aren't, they don't care about that as much, but he really cares about the prophecies, which is why he definitely seems to care a lot more about the chosen one prophecy than Mace or Yoda do. Mm -hmm. And again, if we're talking about supplementals, I mean, him and Dooku, Dooku's was like really into holocrons and the Jedi temple and like the, the archives and stuff that stuff which obviously laments itself to oh, Qui-Gon and you know you talk about uh Obi-Wan and Anakin and maybe Anakin that turning if Qui-Gon is around I mean the relationship between Obi-Wan and Anakin in the first movie it doesn't seem like Obi-Wan even likes Anakin because he even says why do I feel like we're bringing on another useless life form yeah um, referring and, to the Jar Jar of course yeah and it's like <laughs> Uh, you know, like, and, and even then, like, they don't see, and it's, it seems like Obi-Wan only wants to train Anakin because it was Qui-Gon's dying wish, not because he wanted to, but it's because Qui-Gon asked him to. And yes. even throughout that, you know, like at the end when he's like, so what's going to become of me? He's like, you will be a Jedi, I promise. But it's like, here's my master. And he's not like, you know, seeming very optimistic. He's just saying, I'm going to train you. It's like all it is, you know? And then the mm -hmm. relationship obviously gets better as time goes on, but there's still that phantom menace Obi-Wan throughout the trilogy of like until the third movie, I would say this little hesitation, this little bit of like, I'm here because I made a promise, not because I want to be here. Right. And I yeah, think that's right. And I think that's good on Lucas for displaying that because old Ben kind of displayed that in the original trilogy, the way he talks to Darth Vader in some ways, he talks to him in like a very cocky and very like, you know, my job is done and I failed my job kind of way. And it's not like this whole revenge of the Sith type of emotion, you know, with that, that they had with each other. Uh, I think Lucas, I, th I really think Lucas loves Qui-Gon as a character. I think there's like so much in this. He's not, I mean, he is the main character. I would say he's like in almost oh, yeah. every important scene. Um, and even when we talk about his death, it's, 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 you know, when I'm watching this movie, sometimes the, th the whole movie doesn't show like he's going to die. You know, it doesn't show any of that. You just know based on the fact that he's not in the original trilogy in any way. Um, but when he does die, I, it really sucks, you know, like the tragic scenes, but it, it's, it's hinting at it near the end every time Darth Maul's around, which I think Lucas does a really good job of making the bad guys feel very much a visible threat. When I'm listening to the commentary, um, there's random scenes um, throughout the movie where the heroes are doing the stuff, but then it cuts the Sidious and Maul or Viceroy um, and and Maul and, or Sidious. And then it's like, you know, when they warn him not to respond to any transmissions and you get that random scene with a transmission, Obi-Wan says, don't reply to it. It's a trip. Don't send any transmissions. And then it cuts to another scene. Lucas said it's because 
you always want the um what is he write down you always want to keep the threat alive and you want to have the scenes of the villains to let the the audience out that the villains are always approaching they're always on the shoulders of the heroes the impending doom and i love that so much because this movie i feel like has it the most from all the from most of the trilogy i think revenge of the sith maybe does with grievous because you have a lot of bad guys in that movie but uh in this movie i think does it the best where they're just cordially together um the villains scheming and talking yeah, I would like to officially subtitle this Star Wars Vember podcast series the George Lucas Knows What He's Doing podcast <laughs> because he does. Let's it is it is heartbreaking how much people picked on George Lucas during the prequel era and acted like he was stupid or something when mm-hmm. he created this universe. He knows what he's doing and I feel like this movie is just masterful place setting for the yeah. trilogy and for the universe because the, other than the fact that he he puts in a lot of fun action scenes and, and a really cool looking villain and such, it feels like there's almost no attempt to appease fan expectation whatsoever. Like George Lucas knows what he's doing. He knows what this universe is and he's just going to give he's going to give it to you and he's going to play set in this movie and he's not going to sh- he's not going to give you the fall of Anakin. He's not going to give you the emperor taking over. It's these little steps towards that. And you're right just about just making Obi-Wan a grumpier character who's not that interested in Anakin or in training Anakin is masterful place setting to where this is going to go and not starting them at a great relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so, so good. Um, oh gosh, there was something I wanted to discuss about this movie. Oh, should we just, I feel like we've, we put it off long enough. Should we talk about Jar Jar? Let's talk about Jar Jar. All right. Because he's pretty, he's early on in this movie. I think he's funny in a lot of scenes. I think like for someone who's like the casual viewer of Star Wars, I think they might enjoy Jar Jar. At times he's kind of annoying and a little lame for like the fans who want, you know, the, the star fighting and the lightsaber fighting, you know, Jar Jar plays that integral part that Star Wars always has where it's like these it's an alien world. It's a movie about aliens and robots and stuff. And you have this sentient being that's kind of comical in some ways. So yeah, he doesn't look great. But like, you know, how many times have I said, you know, to Charlie throughout the movie or in general, I've always thought like, ha, woo. Or like, you know, you know, like saying like these like Jar Jarisms in a way. And like him shooting his tongue out in the middle of a conversation, like Qui-Gon grabbing his tongue. Like, I, like it's, for, it's fun. It's for kids. It's for people who like don't know all about the lore and everything but he also for me why i like jar jar is he represents um the gungans and what the gungans mean when this like you know this world between humans and aliens and the balance between the two and the kind of like stereotyping and obviously speciesism racism uh, between the humanoids and alien creatures and culture and i don't think Jar Jar represents it super well but it's still a representation that i think is important and i think phantom menace does the best with it with the Gungans. Yeah, Jar Jar does not bother me. Um, I wouldn't say I like love Jar Jar, but mm-hmm. I'm not bothered by him and I'm not annoyed by him. And I recognize one, I recognize he is not there for me. Um, right. He's there for kids in the audience. And it is clear that George Lucas put some things in the prequel trilogy that are more for kids. Yeah. And a lot of people were mad about that and called it stupid or whatever. <laughs> but again, George Lucas knows what he's doing. People who were kids in the prequel era fucking love the prequels now. Like they love them. So mm-hmm. the man knows what he's doing. Um, but also I like how the other characters interact with Jar Jar. 
particularly Qui-Gon, because Qui-Gon is a little bit snarky towards him sometimes. Like the ability to speak does not make you intelligent. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think Jar Jar goes towards what I was talking about and that Qui-Gon always leads with compassion. Just the fact that Qui-Gon keeps Jar Jar around um, tells me how compassionate he is because Jar Jar is kind of annoying. I doubt Qui-Gon loves having Jar Jar around. <laughs> right. But when the Gungans ban Jar Jar, Qui-Gon's like, all right, you know what? You're going to come with us. We're going to take you on this adventure with us. Mm -hmm. And that's just something that I love about him. Yeah. So Jar Jar goes towards building up his character for me. Yeah, it's basically Obi-Wan puts this band together, essentially. <laughs> um, and also, like, Jar Jar is, um, is part of that ensemble of the C-3PO's and R2-D2's, you know? Like, they help the Skywalkers, you know? Like, yeah. his relationship with Padme and Anakin is definitely there. Like, go, go, Annie! You know, and stuff like that. And, like, it's a kid in this scary circumstance without his mother and not having any friends except Watto, who's also his slave owner. Um, you know what I mean? It's like... He, he kind of satisfies the character development for the other more important characters. And also yeah. he's like very instrumental in the later prequel movies about, you know, giving emergency power to Palpatine too. So he's a cunning yes, exactly. politician. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, or, a, or a not cunning politician. Not cunning. No, not say. cunning. Yeah. I mean, a Gungan becomes a politician. I didn't see any representation of the Senate in the first movie um, with him. You know, he gets that, you know, status. That's kind of cool. True. True. Um, but yeah, I, I I like Jar Jar. I I think he's always. I like the alien. I love. So one thing about Star Wars I love are the aliens of these movies. Like the fact that I know what Banthas are and Dubaks and you know all these fucking other insane side background character aliens is like just a part of Star Wars, um, for me and a lot of people. And Jar Jar is just another one of them. Um, plus like he also enhances like the tension between Sebulba and Annie. And it's like Sebulba's fucking cool. And then you get to leave, you know. <laughs> And it's like Watto is I love Watto. Uh <laughs> when he goes like Jupalanoya <laughs> You know, and he's like he sounds like a pre-Seth Rogan in a way. Um <laughs> and he's just like talking with Qui-Gon. I think also it goes back to the character of Qui-Gon where he's like, Maybe I don't enjoy this species, but it's still a living species and I've took a vow to protect them in a way and like defend them. And, you know, again that heightens more the love for Qui-Gon. But even the way he talks to Watto he could probably easily slice Watto and just like take the stuff because it's fucking Moss Eisley. You know, yeah. there's people in containers just blasting people, but he doesn't. He works with them. He finds a way to adapt to their culture and their and and play their game in a way. And yeah, it's fun watching a Jedi Master with no resources because he's like, "All right, we'll give you credits," and they're saying like, "Credits aren't any good out here. Like, I need actual physical money," and uh, and I it's fun watching more real. have to be resourceful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think. And that's a part of this movie that I, you know, like, how do you make the invincible hero more, like, more um, weak, I guess? You know what I mean? Because in this world, I mean, who's going to touch the Jedi, really? I mean, they're, yeah. fight they're fighting battle droids. You know, at least with stormtroopers, they can move and, you know, navigate better. But, like, battle droids are just, it's, they're fodder. They're bantha fodder. You know, they just slice and dice them. <laughs> also, the special... Um, the uh, the special effects artists and what they did with the battle droids, I think, is really cool. They had a bunch, like, a lot of those were, like, built up. Not all of them were CGI. They actually had, like, stand-in models. Oh, sweet. Um, and they puppeted them a little bit. But also they had pre-sliced up battle droids um, for scenes. So, like, they'd have, like, a huge, like, trunk of, like, sliced in this way, sliced in this way to adapt to the scene. So they would throw them in during the shot. So when, like, they sliced it and their bodies fell out... They're like, throw it. Like it's, in, it, I, there's a lot of like 
labor of love in this movie because it's like no one's gonna really care how a battle droid sliced up in the background but the fact that they had pre-cut based on like what kind of swinging motion in certain scenes are shows like this movie had a lot of like man like like a lot of like people like working on it to like satisfy this you know this belief of this world of like how things would be done and how things become what the scenes end up being you know what i mean yeah. You know, something I love about the the battle droids is it, it's always fun to watch Star Wars prequels and see how they enhance uh, moments that, you know, will come after the in- moments we've already seen. And everything that Disney Plus has done so far has been prequels of some kind because they mm-hmm. haven't made anything post sequel era. Um, but uh, but I love that when I watch A New Hope now. And the one and the guy at the cantina says, leave your droids out. We don't want their kind in here. I'm like, oh, that's because of all the dro- all the battle droids during the Clone Wars. And they're mm-hmm. like, we're sick of droids. We don't want them anymore. <laughs> I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, I no, I agree, too. Also, I, this movie do- also goes into the whole thing with Disney and Star Wars is like everything takes place on Tatooine or Jakku or some sort of desert planet. <laughs> this this movie does offer a lot of new planets which i like but it does go back to the most nostalgic planet which is Tatooine, which i have no problem with because that's where he meets anakin yeah this movie feels like it's broken down to three different um acts like the first obviously like the first act is going to be everything up until when they realize they they're in um Tatooine and most Eisley, and they're going to need to find a way to get um a hyperdrive that's like at the first act the second act is everything there up until they leave naboo and then the third act is on Coruscant back to Naboo and that's the movie and it's like when you're thinking about like an an adventure movie the blueprint is very very good there um for this movie and I love the second act the most in this movie because I love the pod racing I love the characters in Tatooine um I love seeing Darth Maul fight you know Obi-Wan or Qui-Gon and I love when they first get to um Coruscant you know like just like bam 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 segments and then we're into the third act of the movie um I think the second act is the strongest in this one because there's so much going on. And the fact that, you know, pod racing is in this movie, like what the hell is pod racing? But then Qui-Gon knows what it is. Very fast, very dangerous. You have to have the, the cunning skills of a Jedi to complete one of those. And then Anderson and goes like, well, I'm the only human that can do it. You know, and like I love that little like interactions like between these characters. And I think Jake Lloyd is awesome in this movie. I know people hate oh, That's what Jake I wanted to Lloyd. ask you. I love Jake Lloyd. I mean, granted, like, I love him in Jingle All the Way, too. And he's iconic with his quotes in that movie. But in this movie, too, he's just so great. And I'll blow you up. Boo. And, you know, like, <laughs> without Anakin, also, you don't get C-3PO. Like, he's, like, instrumental in this first movie in, like, getting so many, like, iconic characters later on that we would get. And we get to see the origins of them. I don't know. I really like Jake Lloyd as Anakin. I know people don't, but I really like it. I do too. I think people's problem with him has nothing to do with him. It's all just about, I don't want to see Darth Vader be a child, but I think starting off with Anakin Skywalker being a child, uh, well serves two functions. One, it's like the ultimate way to get us to sympathize with him right away. So that his fall is more tragic and starting off with him as a kid. Well, really people should, you know, just sympathize with him immediately because he's a 10 year old. And it seems like for some people that had the opposite effect and people are just like, he's just some dumb, annoying kid. Um, But it solves, but it it serves another function in that it really well establishes how important his relationship with is with his mother, Mm -hmm. which is hugely instrumental to his, his eventual fall. Um, And, and Jake Lloyd and, and the actress who plays Shmi, uh, are so great together, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, and yeah, 
Jake Lloyd, like, he's a 10-year-old. So people, like, make fun of him for, like, the yippee. And I'm like, he's 10 years old, guys. Like, 10-year-olds are not that brilliant. They're <laughs> not that charismatic. They're 10-year-olds. And I also just want to say, people say that Jake Lloyd has turned into an asshole a lot because he has had a lot of problems in his life. And he quit acting not long after this movie because of how terribly he was bullied over this movie, which is horribly horribly sad and i wish i could say star wars fans have gotten over bullying real people over these movies they haven't i'm still waiting on that day but also it's not that he's become an asshole he is legitimately mentally ill mm -hmm. um, i saw that he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia yep. so you know let's just be respectful to jake lloyd especially for that as well yeah and i think what the same thing last jedi does um for the world of star wars that i think people maybe don't have like the sensitive bone for is it, it shows that this world of aliens and such slavery is still a thing. Like they talk about like, I can't believe there's slavery still in the galaxy with the Republic and like the Republic doesn't exist here. And it's like, that's really sad and scary that it's yes. like, you know, in last Jedi, we know that the corporate greed and the, the richest people in the galaxy are profiting off the deaths and lives of people um it blurs the lines of this good versus evil and in this movie too it's not the sith that are enslaving people the republic isn't enslaving people it's just you know a wasteland of like of a lawless land where you know anything goes anyone can lose their life in a minute and then here's a kid and his mom trying to survive off of that as being slaves um and it, i think that brings a very real element and sympathy to the character and just like the world of star Wars that I think people overlook. And I, again, like I said, like last Jedi really brings, I'm glad that last Jedi brought that back to the forefront because that movie and the first movie, uh, episode one, really no other star Wars really kind of covers that. Definitely. Yeah. I, I love that moment, especially for Padme when she says like, I didn't think slavery existed in the gal in the Republic. Mm -hmm. And and then she says, Repu and, and Anakin's mom says Republic doesn't exist out here because you need to set the plate. You need to place things in, in knowing that the Republic is not perfect and mm -hmm. the Republic is good. It's better than the empire, but it's failing a lot of people. And that's mm -hmm. one reason that Palpatine is able to move in. He's able to exploit those failings and, uh, and keep increasing his power so that he can quote unquote, fix them. Mm -hmm. And you get, um, they're not, they're not part of, uh, Jabba's, um, hut i guess they're, they're about his sister's Jabba's hut <laughs> or, or Jabba's like i guess i i'm i'm very confused on the ownership of tatooine with the hut um because there's three different ones there's like you know there's Jabba and there's the, the 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 woman the female hut and then there's the other boy one that we saw in uh the book of boba fett but she was mentioned as being oh she's the owner of shmi and anakin and wado is kind of like the overseer of some sort in that way i'm very confused by the dynamics of that but i thought that little like breadcrumb that we eventually see in book of boba fett is in the first movie as well with that that's little a good part. point um, i like seeing little breadcrumbs like i noticed there's a statue in in anakin and shmi's place that looks like maz kanata yeah <laughs> and also anakin has this one kid friend who calls something totally wizard, wizard. Mm -hmm. and uh and the mandalorian later calls something wizard, wizard. in the book of boba fett <laughs> i love that yeah yeah no i mean the book of boba fett's one of my favorite pieces of literature actually so it's, it's my favorite book of the bible at least i mean yeah yeah it, it has to be easily i can't believe people don't open up a book anymore it's about boba fett for crying out loud <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you want to talk about the pod race? <laughs> yeah, man. Oh my god. I, I so 
I love the pod racing. It's always one of my favorite things in Star Wars, period. It's iconic with the quotes, but just like the act of pod racing is insanely cool. Um, but when I was watching it on my Blu-ray, I have the complete saga. It's not the one with like the desert um, of Tatooine and, and Anakin. It's like the blue one with Vader on it. Um, and they in, and there is not an option for the theatrical or special edition. It's just the special edition. And I always watch the VHS of Phantom Medicine, then the DVD. Um, but with, I watched this, there are so many added in scenes in the pod racing more than any other part of the movie. It's all in the pod racing. Like there's introductions to the different pod racers. That's very long. Uh, the sequences with Jabba are very long and you know, they're out of place cause there's a lot of heavy CGI in those scenes. And I'm not one to see like, Oh my gosh, like this is driving me nuts. It's kind of cool and interesting to see what Lucas wanted to put in the movie. And then he ends up deciding this is like important enough to put in the actual runtime for the movie. That's how I feel with stars. I feel, I know with like the despecialized and all these other things like is a thing, and I and I totally I get it. I'm not criticizing people who like those, but like for me, it doesn't bother me as much. But with the pod racing, I totally notice there's a lot of edited scenes and interactions with Anakin and the pod racers in this movie. At least in the That's edition cool. I watched. That's cool because I, I mean, I'm sure I haven't seen the theatrical edition since I saw it in theaters. Mm -hmm. um, I think it, since then, I've only ever seen the special edition. The only changes I knew of is they made Yoda totally CGI like yeah. he is in the next two movies. He was originally mm -hmm. a puppet in the mm -hmm. theatrical. And I think, am I right about this? Did they remove Yaddle in the special edition? They, uh, Yeah, there is no Yaddle in the special yeah, edition. Yeah, which sucks because Yaddle is now in Tales mm -hmm. of the Jedi and she's awesome. So mm -hmm. that is... That sucks that they took her out. Yeah, she's only a background character in the Jedi Council scene when they when Obi Wan and Qui Gon are first there. She's a background character. Okay, good. Like just I for like one little entirely. It's like one little part. Um, but other okay. than that, there's there's no other scenes of her. There was more because that's how Yaddle grew is like a conversation piece besides Yoda because he wasn't the only species there. There was two others. There's the pinkish Jedi and then there was Yaddle. Mm hmm. Yeah, the, and now we the, have Grogu. The family is growing. <laughs> there you go. You know, we'll we'll get into the Yoda thing in, uh, later, but let's talk about pod racing because it's like, you know, when the scene of the pod racing, uh, like when Anakin is building his pod race, uh, pod racer, and um, the kids are all coming out and making fun of him while he's completing his stuff, like the it's working, it's working. Oh, love that. Yeah, I do too. And like she's <laughs> just like, like the disappointed but like proud mom, like oh man, my kid might die, but I'm so happy he's doing things for himself. Um, kind of look. Um, and it's right before Qui Gon and her kind of like have this very intimate, like just have sex already kind of moment together. <laughs> um, but the kids that are out there that are like like the baby Greedo and stuff, you know and laughing at him that. basically let's come on let's go play ball well one of the girls in that scene is actually george lucas's daughter i found out oh, and i thought that's, that's really cool and it's like when you listen to the commentary you know you get to find out little things like that and it makes you appreciate these prequel movies more because it felt like lucas is just injecting himself into these movies in so many different types of ways absolutely it's a beautiful thing and i i love that pod race so much fun such a great set piece I, I noted in a, a episode of Cobwebs I did a long time ago talking about Elvis movies. Uh -huh. The pod race looks like the race scene in uh, Viva Las Vegas with Elvis. Uh -huh. And Viva Las Vegas is a popular movie with people of George Lucas's generation. So it would uh -huh. not surprise me if he's kind of templating it a little bit. In American Graffiti with the with the the playing the chicken with the cars as well too, and you get all these different pods too. Well, there you go. Yeah, and that's uh -huh. just George Lucas to George Lucas mm -hmm. right there. Um, yeah, it's it's super fun. The idea of pod racing is great. 
doesn't come from the originals at all. Totally new idea. Like I said, this movie is full of new ideas. Um, and it really, really sells how dangerous pod racing is. <laughs> it feels extremely dangerous because Anakin is the only one who even finishes the race. Everyone else crashes and burns in the whole thing. <laughs> I love the scenes of like zoom ins of these pod racers right before they die. Like that little guy who like gets pushed by Sebulba and then he looks ahead and oh, there's yeah. like a little rock and he just goes ah, and then just crashes into it. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's little great moments of comedy peppered throughout, which is great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My and favorite one being when they pass by a couple of Jawas and they just yell, Oh, <laughs> because Jedi Jawas are one of my favorite aliens mm -hmm. in Star Wars. They're my minions. I don't like the minions, but if I'm talking about short little creatures that speak gibberish, Jawas all the way. I love them. Yeah, I love it. And it shows you how gross and horrible Sebulba is. Like, we don't know much <laughs> about Sebulba other than, like, he's, like, bullying uh, Anakin and, and um, uh, Jar Jar. But he's, like... You know, he's like that one guy you always bet on on fights to win, you know, like the way Watto and Qui-Gon have this bet. Also, I must have been too dumb or naive early on to understand how gambling worked because, like, I always was confused on, like, the Watto and Qui-Gon um, betting. But, like, the first bet, I'm like, that's a very sensible bet. Why does Watto hesitate and just go, deal? You know, it's like, that's a win-win easily, like, bet. Like... Um, but then like the second bet, the bet on top of a bet where Qui-Gon just comes by chance and goes, I'll take in on that bet about Sebulba winning and then to free Anakin. It's like, that's dicey. That's a, that's a really, really good little scene before the race about getting that second bet. Yeah. And, and just the betting is another example that Qui-Gon is willing to do what it takes to be resourceful, to get the job done. And that I'm sure gambling is not looked favorably upon in the Jedi. I'm mm -hmm. sure like Mace Windu would have been like, I'm not doing that. But Qui-Gon, he does what it takes. And he he's willing to bend Jedi rules uh, in the moment to be able to help people. Another Seriously. thing I love about him. Yeah. And then with Padme um, being like, um, you Jedi are far too reckless. The queen knew about this. The queen trusts my judgment. You should too. <laughs> and she goes, you assume too much. Yeah. And it's like, oh, if you later on in the movie, you know, you kind of get why she says that. Um, I love that little doppelganger switch in this movie too. I think it works really well. Yeah. Um, we do got to talk about Padme for sure. Yeah. And you know, did you know, I didn't know how old Natalie Portman was until this rewatch. Um, how old she was for the Phantom Menace. She was uh, 16 or 17 in this movie. And yeah, if you it came out when she was 18, at least. Yeah. And if you apply that rule of logic to Anakin, because eventually their relationship in this movie um, and what it becomes, I used to think it was really weird, but it's like, it kind of is more, because I think Anakin's supposed to be like 10 or 11, I think. Jake Lloyd was 10. So I yeah. think he's supposed to be 10 as well. Yeah. So it's like the age gap isn't as crazy as some people think. Like, I, is there a romantic part of it? No, I think she just, you know, sees like this young boy without a mother and wants to help him. Um, you know, and then it blossoms into whatever it is. But I, I that's one part of the movie because I remember always thinking, that's so creepy and stuff. And I'm like, you know, it's just an age gap that's not super crazy. And it's in this world of like hokey religions and aliens and stuff. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, and, it's not a big deal to me either because so she's, she's 18 when the movie comes out, I believe she's supposed to be 15. Mm -hmm. Um, so that makes it like a, a five year age difference in the next movie. Like she's 25, he's 20 and revenge mm -hmm. of Seth, maybe like he's 25, she's 30. It's, mm -hmm. it's not really a big deal at all. And it's not like they have sex in this movie guys, yeah. like at all. There are a couple she of kids who meet and they'll fall in love later in life. 
are you an angel? <laughs> you know, it's like, is this so like, I like how they have angels and it's like not religious like that. It's like, they're just an alien species that the deep space pilots get to see from time to time. You know what I mean? I kind of <laughs> like that small little interjection. I felt like it's like a middle finger where it's like, it's a- angels aren't just tied to the Bible. It's like also just like an alien species. <laughs> yeah. Like I think they live on the outer rim over here. Blah, blah, blah. It's fun. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but Padme, I Ah, man, just like the doppelganger switcheroo thing. It makes you see the movie so much more different once you realize what's going on. And it makes you... For me, Padme is awesome as a character in all the prequel movies. But in this movie especially, being as young as she is and also being queen and dealing with all these this political bullshit that's going on in her in like with her um her planet really make really respects me respects her more especially in attack of the clones when she's talking to anakin about when she first became queen and all the pressure that she had and in this movie she's putting herself in straight danger and like strategizing and stuff she definitely shines through a lot in this movie yeah i love padme um i I recognize the execution of her in the prequel trilogy is not always perfect i would say like if i had my biggest criticism of the prequel trilogy I think it has a real problem with female characters because the only female characters it really has are Anakin's mom and Anakin's love interest. Um, This is the best movie for female characters of the prequels. They get, they get uh, worse as we go. And, and I don't think that's just like a political correctness representation problem. I think it's an actual problem because the later TV shows show what great female character uh, potential there was in this timeline with when you get like Ahsoka and Asajj Ventress and a mm-hmm. lot of other female characters that are expanded. Um, they show how much potential was there that George Lucas didn't utilize in favor of just a bunch of dudes. So that's a little bit of a bummer, mm-hmm. but I do love Padme and I find she's a character I'm weirdly emotional about because if she's ever referenced in later Star Wars stuff, it always makes me emotional. Like it often brings a tear to my eye, particularly in uh, the Obi-Wan show kind of spoilers in the last episode when Obi-Wan tells Leia all the, the quality she has from her mother. I was like, Oh my God, tears. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I don't know. I'm not entirely sure why, but it may just be because her life was so tragic um, because this is a, this trilogy is a tragedy for Anakin. It's a tragedy for the galaxy. It's really a tragedy tragedy for Padme because she had so much potential as this amazing woman and and her life just became so sad by the end. Yeah, no kidding. And like her whole life was probably, I mean, it's it's just conflict the entire time from an emotional and physical standpoint, you know, and political standpoint too. Um, yeah, when you talk about that part in Kenobi, it's really great because eventually what Carrie Fisher does with, um, with Leia and then you see the way Padme is in the first movie, I think, especially it's very one-to-one because Leia is such a badass with a blaster and can negotiate well, but all as a politician, but also can be a, you know, a warrior and fight and defend for herself. Padme does the same thing. She's leading all these soldiers and the, these officers and strategizing and all these other things. And it's like very one-to-one. Like, it's like, I think like, you know, if Padme could see what, you know, Leia would become, she'd be very proud and be like, you know, I taught her well, but it's like, they never met each other. Not until like they were just, you know, newborns. And I think that's like a really good point that I don't know if Lucas meant to or not, but it's like, when I see Padme, I kind of see like Leia also in a way, because they're very similar. Like hairstyles are very extravagant and and unique. And then also the way that they fight and they stand up for themselves um, is really awesome too, amongst all these other like, you know, bozos with blasters. 
Yeah, and, and that was very intentional from George Lucas. He talked about how he wanted to cast somebody who reminded him of Carrie Fisher, of Leia, and he went with Natalie Portman, uh, which was a great idea because she went on to become one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. Seriously, no kidding there. I was just thinking about that too. It's like, I don't know if he, and she was already doing big stuff before Star Wars too. At least Leon the Professional, that's like the one thing I can think of. I thought she was in a show too. I, I might be wrong. She um, probably was. Oh, and she was in Michael Mann's Heat, of course. Heat, yeah, without Pacino. Shout out Matt Bledsoe. Yeah, Gotta Matt Bledsoe. Out you mentioned Michael Mann. <laughs> he's just a Michael Bo Michael boy. You know, you can't say he's a Michael man. He's a Michael boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see other things about Padme. I think is really cool. Um, the way she interacts with Shmi, I always like those scenes when I watch this movie because I think she gets some things from Shmi when Anakin is a boy, like when he leaves Tatooine and then like when they get, especially in attack of the clones too. And it's like, no wonder, you know, Anakin feels very like the way he does. He doesn't have his mom anymore. She's like, when he sees where his mom's like, but Padme's kind of there is like, um, a warm comfort that understands why he is the way he is. Cause like no one else can like understand him. And I always think that's really good in the first movie, having them to interact with each other so much. And it kind of came by accident because if Padme didn't go like, um, you know, captain, uh, Panaka says the queen wants his, her handmaid there. And Qui-Gon's like, no, we don't need any orders from the queen. It's like, if Padme wasn't there, you know, obviously you don't meet Anakin, but you also don't know how to, empathize with him and how to connect with him in that sort of way. If he just showed up on the ship, you know, like, would there be a connection? Would there be an understanding of who he is and where he's coming from? Cause I don't think anyone else knows about Anakin being a slave or anything like that, except the people who went to Tatooine and interacted with him. Yeah, totally agree. Very well said. Also shout out Kira Knightley as a Padme <laughs> doppelganger. Yeah. I love, <laughs> ah, it's so fun watching this movie and knowing is like, Oh, that's not, that's not Padme. Uh, that's not uh Natalie Portman. That's not Natalie Portman. Yeah. <laughs> but with the makeup and they're very similar looking women, it's very easy to be tricked by it. Even when you know the twist. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, let's see. And then after they leave, I mean, God, when they introduce Darth Maul, when he fucking fights, um, Qui-Gon in oh, the desert. Oh, baby. He's got his space motorcycle. <sighs> He's got his hood up, just looking the baddest of the bad. Mm -hmm. So good. That's such a great introdu introduction to, like, um, the, like, to like how Darth Maul is as a villain, like how the way he fights. Cause all you see him is standing cool, saying a few cool lines, but then when you see him in action, he like, he obviously delivers it. Well, um, the actor who plays him, uh, Park, what's his first Ray name? Park. Ray Park. Awesome actor in this movie when he with, with Darth Maul. It's insane. Yeah, man. And I love that there's no attempt to do Darth Vader again. George mm -mm. Lucas is not going for like another version of Darth Vader because that was already successful. Um, completely different kind of character. Basically a devil ninja. I mean, he looks like <laughs> the devil and he moves like a ninja. And uh, it is so freaking cool. And it starts the tradition of different kinds of lightsabers double-ended lightsaber was a brilliant idea so mm -hmm. good yeah because the only thing we got was a green lightsaber that was the big thing in the original trilogy was just a different colored lightsaber besides red yeah. and blue and uh, i love how luke gets an uh, a green lightsaber and then to start the new trilogy qui-gon has a green lightsaber too absolutely absolutely um, i love a green lightsaber so much it just looks better i don't know it just for me it just does um, and they're a little rarer there's less green lightsabers than mm -hmm. blue Mm-hmm. What do you think? Because Tatooine was such a pivotal scene with the midichlorian thing. Oh, I, man, I want to talk about this. Yeah, people get pissed about the logistics and, like, all that other stuff. 
I mean, it I don't matter. No, it doesn't. But it's it's just a really interesting detail for the prequel movies is like how they detected Jedi when they're young and then just take them from their families because like, you know, their blood is just a little different. You know, they're just literally built different and um, <laughs> literally built different. <laughs> but yeah. it's like. But but then real quick, but the Qui Gon goes like, I'm surprised like no one detected this Metachlorian count us. We would have scooped him up a long time ago. It's like you just admit we would have kidnapped your kid a long time ago if he was in our radar. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other discussion. Is how <laughs> ethical is it of the Jedi to take people when they're tiny little children? When even ten year old Jake Lloyd is supposedly too old. <laughs> I mean, in, in Empire Strikes Back, Yoda says Luke is too old, but he's like 20. So it's yeah. like, okay, like maybe they start when they're like, you know, 16. Mm-hmm. No, apparently they start when they're like five. Yeah. Uh, that's my pretty big, weird. My big annoyance is the more I watch the prequel movies with Yoda is the more I start to resent Yoda. Because he's the wisest of all the Jedi, the highest midichlorian count before Anakin. And more than one time as Jedi came to the Council and Yoda talking about the potential fall of the Jedi and just disregards it. And it's like, Yoda, buddy, I know you're smart and all this shit, but like, when are you going to like wise up and like, you know, you see, you think you can see through the future and stuff. And like these people who have these visions are telling you these things that are of, of impending danger and you just disregard it. And you just never go on with it. You just like, I don't know is for as wise as Yoda is and how much power he has, he really doesn't do anything and is very instrumental to the fall. Cause like you get Qui-Gon, you get Dooku, you get, Master Sifo-Dyrus, and when we talk about him with the Attack of the Clones, and then you get Endo Corvo with the new Fallen Jedi video game that came out. These four amazingly intelligent and respected Jedi are telling them about the Fallen Jedi, and Yoda just, well, maybe not. Maybe you should be more mindful of your thoughts and keep them to yourself. You know what I mean? It's like, how much love and championing can we do for Yoda? Because he's really kind of a big problem. <laughs> Yoda's not perfect, and he never has been. Real quick, I do want to address the midichlorians. Mm -hmm. Um, The midichlorians are are my parents' biggest problem with the prequels. They always talk about how stupid the midichlorians are. Um, For one thing, if you listen to George Lucas talk, uh, the midichlorians are incredibly important to George Lucas, very important to the lore of the Force. Mm -hmm. And number one, a a misconception about the midichlorians, they do not give you superpowers. Um, They are living organisms that are in all living things and are more attracted to people that have that have more of the force. So people have more of the force have midichlorians because of their attraction to that. And the midichlorians communicate the will of the force through someone. It's like a symbiotic relationship. I think, I think actually Qui-Gon uses the word symbiote. Yeah. Um, Is that weird? Yes. Is Star Wars weird? Hell yes. Star Wars is a weird thing. In fact, I've heard about how George Lucas had a, a, a vision of um, not not a mystical vision, but, you know, a business vision or a creative of a third Star Wars trilogy instead of like what we got of a third Star Wars trilogy of actually about the microscopic organisms inside of the blood, um, which is not a great idea. And it's a good thing that that never came to fruition, I think. But um, but the Midichlorians are not a big deal. It's just. And and the idea of the of the force being in the blood, being somewhat genetic, is not a new idea. It's in mm-hmm. the original trilogy, obviously. Luke and Leia are strong with the force because of their father. That's mm-hmm. very clear. Mm-hmm. So while the force can be for everyone, and the force is for everyone, it is in some ways genetic. There's just no denying that. Right. And it's and it is the is the issue that 
midichlorians are the explanation for what may give the Jedi their power in like determining who's a Jedi and who isn't? Or is it because Anakin doesn't have a father and he was conceived by the Force in these midichlorians? Which is weird. I, I still... That's one choice I'm not super on board with. It's way too Jesus-y. It's yeah. way too explicit with a Christ metaphor. And um, it, that's one thing about this movie. It still doesn't work for me personally. And it feels anti-religion because it uses religious aspects and stories and parables and details from the Bible. But then it's like the Jesus character becomes the devil or becomes evil, you know? Yeah, um, it's and a weird has... one-to-one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then it's like... Like it doesn't, I mean, but then you see in Last Jedi, which Ryan Johnson does executes perfectly, I think is like, yeah, like the midichlorian determines, but literally anyone can have midichlorians. It doesn't have to be a bloodline. It doesn't have to be all these other things. Look at it in the prequel movies, all these different types of walks of life and alien species that have the, the midichlorian and the ability to interact with the force. I think even Yoda's species is like a little, it's particularly more force sensitive. If I like, that's not Canon anymore, I think, but I think there were some books that explained that the, that's what it seems like, at yeah, least. like the, the race of, I forget what his race is called. That's why they live for hundreds and hundreds of years and, and then are super wise with the force. Um, it's a, it's an interesting way to explain it because it would be, it'd be really weird if it just like, it's just this oddly natural phenomenon of these people bending gravity to their will. Yeah. And, and to talk about Yoda a little bit, cause you touched on him. Um, yeah. Yoda's not perfect. Uh, he, I think he does make several mistakes in this trilogy and we'll talk about more in the next two, but he has to be imperfect because he has to fail. That's where this mm -hmm. has to go. And he has to exile himself Obviously, I mean, in, in Empire Strikes Back, he has exiled himself. It has to be some kind of self-punishment for mistakes. And he does make mistakes. Um, and yeah, he is too set in his ways and set in risk aversion and bureaucracy. And that's what Qui-Gon is not. And that's why Qui-Gon has to die, because I think that does make way for the fall of the Jedi. Mm, good point. And it does, I guess, make Episode Seven so much better because he tells Luke those tax important wisdom there was, but you know, not really big page turners. It's finally Yoda taking his turn away from the way he used to be in the prequel movies, you know? Yeah. Was, and so I guess that makes that feel a lot better, but it's like my fucking brother in Christ, not, you know, cause we're talking about space Jesus. It's like your own Padawan was telling you that the fall of the Jedi is looming. It's like, come on. <laughs> um, hey, speaking of speaking of Yoda real quick, do you think it's a a canon issue that um that that Obi-Wan is Qui-Gon's Padawan when in Empire Strikes Back he references that Yoda taught him? I always thought that Yoda taught Qui-Gon after Dooku, you know, peaced out. But but that in Empire Strikes Back Obi-Wan says that Yoda taught him. So is it a problem oh. that he's Qui-Gon's Padawan? I think maybe cuz Qui-Gon didn't exist up until that point for, in Lucas's mind. And obviously Obi-Wan did learn um, from Yoda how to communicate with the Force and eventually in the end of Kenobi, spoilers, how to communicate with Qui-Gon. That's a great point because I've always thought it's not a problem because it seems like in Attack of the Clones when we see Yoda training a bunch of younglings that I think Yoda trains all of them to a mm -hmm. certain point and then mm -hmm. they go off with their own master. So I think even though Obi-Wan is Qui-Gon's Padawan, he still learned from Yoda and you're absolutely right that after revenge of the Sith, he learns from Yoda as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, that's how I've always th- thought of it um, when it comes to the relationship with Obi-Wan and, and Yoda because their relationship in Revenge of the Sith, which we could talk on in the later episodes, it, it's a very, I like that relationship, the interaction between the two because it's the most, because it started off very rocky with him and Yoda in Phantom Menace at the end of the movie. Um, you got a problem with CGI Yoda or do you think about the puppet version of him like I do when I was a kid? I still think about Yoda being the puppet. I remember visually how he looked and how he walked and stuff like that. I really like that. I'm not one of those who's like, oh, the CGI is horrible. But when Yoda and Phantom, that's one of the things I like about Yoda when I was a kid was him being the puppet, just like he was in the original trilogy when I was a kid. I don't have a strong enough memory of puppet Yoda and Phantom. I need to go ahead and YouTube those scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, I do prefer puppet Yoda when it comes to like Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> And also in Last Jedi, that's Puppet Yoda. Definitely prefer Puppet Yoda. But I also recognize Puppet Yoda is not entirely realistic uh, proposition when it comes to Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith because he has to fight. He Mm -hmm. has to get into the action. That's a lot harder with a Muppet. (laughs) So I recognize that they kind of had no choice, especially by those two movies. Mm-hmm. Really off. I just really remembered um, earlier we were talking about pod racing. Did you recognize Warwick Davis in the crowd with Wada when they're watching the pod racing? Yeah, I love that. Solo as well. I love when he makes extra cameos. I for some reason I was thinking about him in Willow, and yeah, when I totally. watched it, I was like I was like, oh, that's awesome to see Warwick there. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, um, when they're in Coruscant um, or Coruscant, you know, is how they call it sometimes. Chancer of Valorum. You know, I kind of enjoy watching him in this movie more now because I've watched Superman 2 and he's General Zod. And when I see him as Chancellor, I want him to say, Zod has spoken, you know. (laughs) Um, And then you get to the political aspects and then you you see these different species like the Viceroy people saying like, this is an outrage. We need a vote and stuff like that. And then talk about how there's never going to be... uh, a, a quick solution it's gonna be you know it's corrupt the, the senate has failed everyone and it's all bureaucrats and and basically what the u.s government is like now and stuff like that um on top of the jedi as well um you int- get introduced to a bunch of later on um jedi like kia mundi and mace windu and stuff there's a lot going on on coruscant it's like almost like i always think it's exhausting going through because there's so much important stuff and in, in introductions there that i feel like lucas could have handled a little bit better um but the stuff on coruscant because you also get uh, Padme talking to to Jar Jar about um, the relationship between the Naboos, uh, Nabooians and um, and the uh, the Gungans and like her plot to just go back and then like you're watching what Sidious is trying to do and they just see what the the Jedi are saying. There's a lot of stuff going on on Coruscant. Definitely, and and by far my favorite thing about Coruscant, Ian uh, Ian McDermott as mm-hmm. Palpatine. Uh, I love Palpatine in the prequel trilogy. And, um, and like I've said before on the last thing, I don't love him in return of the Jedi. I think he hadn't totally found the character yet, but by the prequels, he's so good. I kind of love that this movie never explicitly makes it clear that he's also Darth Sidious. Mm -mm. Um, by the way, all of his names come from this movie, Palpatine and Darth Sidious, uh, in the original trilogy, he's only referenced Mm -hmm. as the emperor. Mm -hmm. So that's cool. Um, even though you know he's the Emperor, um, as if you're paying attention, uh, <laughs> he's Darth Sidious. But I, I kind of like that they never make that clear. I like at the very end when um, Mace Windu and Yoda are, are disrespectfully having a side conversation during Qui-Gon's funeral. Ugh. They're just like, oh, but there's always two Sith. So so what's the other one? And then it, it pans over to Palpatine. Mm-hmm. That's a cool mm-hmm. little, little thing. But, uh, but he's so good in this because he's got that Emperor energy as Darth Sidious. But then he's just this nice, 
politician seeming guy as Palpatine and uh, and that duality that he brings to it's really, really great. Mm-hmm. I love how he's like presenting this Chancellor Valorum is in the pocket of these bureaucrats and that we need a stronger Supreme Chancellor that's going to actually make some changes. A part of me thinks, yes, that's probably necessary, but also at the same time, it's very like cutthroat politics for him to gain power. It's very he's playing chess when everyone else was playing checkers. And I really like that element of Palpatine. Cause like, if you watch the original trilogy, he's just the emperor. You would not think about like how devious he was to, to get into power. And it feels weird when you see the transition. Cause it's like, a, especially in Phantom Menace, I kind of enjoy his character. I'm like, here's a, here's a happy go lucky politician who wants to do right with his planet. You know, he seems nice. Yeah. When he shows up, I remember when he was sitting in the theater, I was six years old, but when he first shows up, I said a surprise to be sure, but a welcome one. <laughs> Yeah, even then, right? What's your metachlorine <laughs> count out? Pull your pants down. <laughs> uh, you know, one thing I love about the Phantom Menace is that I can put on my resume, you know, languages I speak. I put Huttonese because I can speak all the Tatooine language. It's called Huttonese. So I always go on my interview, interviews going like, Chupaladoya! You know, you say, like Han Mabubi. <laughs> Uh, yeah, never forget, Biz Fortuna is in Phantom Menace as well. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right, he is. Very mm-hmm, nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, when they get back to Naboo, God, that that the action set pieces with the Gungans and in, in, in the palace and then the Duel of Fates. Honestly, very underrated. Anakin going and fighting in the Starfighter um, battle. I really like that part of the movie. One thing I don't love about that part, to be honest is so much of his success in that is chance. He's just like, <laughs> I'll try spinning. That's a cool trick. And then just sort of stumbles into blasting a bunch of bad guys, um, which we've already established how great a pilot he is, at least with a pod race, that mm-hmm. I don't feel like we needed to. I heard some people talk about this in a podcast once, and they talked about how maybe they couldn't actually have a 10 year old fly up and just murder a bunch of people in a war, just blast them all. So they had to like make it an accident that he's successful in that Ooh, battle. That's a good way. I was just thinking it was cause I thought he was kind of doing like a little middle finger, a little like, you know, thing to Qui-Gon when Qui-Gon says stay in that cockpit. And then the cockpit that's goes great. and he's like, well, Qui-Gon did say to stay in the cockpit. That and is I think, good. That I is feel fun. like that's him being a kid, like a rebellious kid. And he's knowing what he's doing. Cause he's telling R2 to get off this autopilot because it's going to get us both killed. Um, that's how I have always looked at that part. And I also like the part when he does like destroy it and the pies go, we didn't did it. And then they're like, look, what of our own in the hole? And then they're like, they're just, yeah, I just, I just like that part. And then you get the Western yeah. guy going like, you know, and it's like, <laughs> all right, getting a little too Western for my liking there. Um, <laughs> I think the Gungan part is my least favorite part, but sure. I still like the parts with like the, well, Misa no have a booby. Yeah. Take this one. And they're like throwing those blue balls <laughs> um, at droids. <laughs> it's the only part of the movie where the droids actually feel menacing. <laughs> I do love the third act. It continues the Star Wars tradition ever since Empire Strikes Back, at least, uh, where you have multiple different kinds of battles going on in the climax. Mm. Um, A New Hope's kind of the only one that just keeps it to one kind of battle. Mm. Um, But uh, so you got three different levels. You've got the space battle, you got the ground battle, and then you've got the intimate lightsaber fight. I really enjoy it. I think it's a really rousing conclusion to the movie. The Gungan battle 
is so ripped off by Avengers Infinity War. It looks <laughs> exactly like the ground battle in Avengers Infinity War. And the Wakandans are like used exactly the same as the Gungans are used mm. in this. Mm. Um, that is one thing. When I first rewatched the prequels a few years ago, like for the first time since I was a kid, I was like, man, Marvel has just ripped off the Star Wars prequels like left and right. <laughs> no kidding. Also, it's like I, I respect the Gungans because they know I like what Qui-Gon goes. There's a there's a problem with your plan, Padme, because a lot of Gungans might be killed. And then like Big Boss is like, we ready to do us apart and stuff like that. And it's like it's again Qui-Gon looking out for, you know, the 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 the, the, the more, I guess, weak of the species or the ones who are going to die. The more. less powerful, the less powerful. Yeah. And I like that little tiny little part. And all Obi-Wan says, like, if you, like, fail, you know, he'll come back with, a like, a, a bigger army and stuff. Like, wow, thanks to deflate the morale, Obi-Wan. Uh, <laughs> but um, I like the parts where <laughs> I think there's a lot of really good editing in that third act with the parts with Padme, like, saying, like, Captain, we don't have time for this. And then just cuts to a part blasting and then it's transitions to another part or it's like the cut in be editing parts between the lightsaber fights with uh darth maul it feels like there's always something going on and it's high high anxiety and, and i love that it's like you just get really enthralled in it um my god the introduction to darth maul with the double blade lightsaber i think that was my first um time i was like wow i need to get me one of those you know like <laughs> God, that was so freaking cool with the hood down. And then they pull out their elegant weapons for a more civilized time. You know, the music hits perfect with the lightsabers coming out. Yeah. Mm. It is an unforgettable Star Wars image up there with the very best when the music is ramping up and he drops the hood and he busts out the saber. And in the first scene, his first lightsaber fight with Qui-Gon, he just uses one end of it. Mm -hmm. We don't know it's a double bladed and then it comes out on the other end. So good. That really is one of the best lightsaber fights the prequel trilogy is great for lightsaber fights, and that one is amazing. A lot of times when you have, I notice in movies and action movies, when you have one character versus multiple characters, the multiple characters will kind of like take turns yeah. <laughs> coming, at the hero, coming at the hero or the villain, whoever's fighting alone. Um, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. It works perfectly in this movie because it really does look like Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are really going at this guy, and he's holding them back perfectly alone. And... The, I don't entirely know how it works or why it works, but the force shield thing that automatically keeps popping up mm -hmm. is a great way to one pause for tension to build and two mm -hmm. to get some one-on-one -on -one fights in there. Yeah, that's a good point. One thing I noticed with this fight between them, there's not a lot of cuts. There's a lot of like, just there's a transition into this part of their fighting section. And it just, them. Um, you see Obi-Wan and, and Qui-Gon running towards Darth Maul and, and he's fighting them off even more and he's backing them backing in more. Also this, this fight more than any of the other fights in the prequels, or maybe even I think until the sequels with like Ray and Kylo, um, there's like a lot of physicality to the fighting. It's not just cuts and jumps and flips and fighting of the blade. There's kicking, there's punching, there's pushing off. And there's like, it feels like a, an actual like fencing of sword fighting and martial arts mix into it. We're not martial arts, but like, just like brutality. Like how many times does Darth Maul kick or hit? And then Qui-Gon like back, backhands Maul when he falls down and you see them jumping. And it's like, I, I don't know if there's a lot of stunt doubles in those parts because, um, like, I think the prequels were notorious, not notorious, but famous for a lot of, oh, Hugh McGregor doing a lot of his own stunts. Um, yeah. And both in, like, the, uh, 
I, I didn't write down his name, um, but the uh, the the I forget what the title is, but the the choreographer um, for the movie um, in the commentary I was listening to Liam Neeson and um, Ewan McGregor in that commentary with them, and they talk about like the physicality of doing these roles and Obi and Liam saying. You know, a lot of the roles that I did, if there's action sequences, I probably wouldn't have wanted to do them. But he said because the the director of the choreography was awesome and very careful with everything, I felt comfortable doing a lot of my own scenes. And same thing with Ewan. And Ewan eventually would do it, like basically got like a sword mastery certificate because of how he was um, in the prequel movies later on. Um, they look legit. They look like they all literally took forever choreographing how they would fight each other with these um like these sticks to turn them into lightsabers it's so awesome to see that because you know the background knowledge is they're literally fighting each other there's no like stunt double in a lot of those scenes in this movie yeah i love that knowledge you brought to it because i was thinking watching it if there's much stunt doubling in this fight i can't see it like mm -hmm. i can't tell whatsoever um because there are like you said a lot of wide shots where it's very clear it's those actors fighting it's great that they got an actual stuntman just to play Darth Maul because the flips he's doing are incredible. Again, he's devil ninja, um, <laughs> which is fantastic. And after Qui-Gon dies, when Obi-Wan is filled with like some rage and he's going at Maul really hard, that's almost like the best an actor has ever looked with Old Maid Saber in this, in this trilogy. Like, I cannot <laughs> believe how incredible Ewan McGregor is in that one-on-one -on -one fight. Yeah, and we don't even know about like what is it like the, the the hatred and anger that goes towards sword fighting uh, or with lightsaber duels but um you know later on the prequels talk about like you know not using so much rage or like when you know Kaduku or even cities like I can feel the rage going through you and like Luke Skywalker with Vader in episode six I feel that kind of feeling with Obi-Wan and Darth Maul after Qui-Gon dies a little bit I mean he's so aggressive he busts like the second part of uh, Maul's uh, double blade and I'm like, wow, that's really badass. But he's like not chilling at all. Like there's like there's no pause. He's just so aggressive towards him. I really like that part of the fight because it just feels really unhinged. Yeah. One one point of aggression I love from Maul is when the force shield pops up between Qui-Gon and Maul and Qui-Gon kneels and meditates and Maul <laughs> is just pacing like a guard dog waiting to strike at him in any second. That is a great visual. Yeah, I love that. It it feels like Maul is really getting off on this fight throughout the, the whole thing. Like when he's backing up, it seems like he's grinning. And when they do like the the superhero, like that, like it feels like the Marvel, like, you know, zoom in on the hero like moments, you know, or like Snyder eventually would do like that cool hero pose parts. This fight has a lot of like zooming in on the actor, like, you know, there's Qui-Gon, then there's Obi-Wan, then there's Maul, just like their face on screen, you know, cutting to each other's face. I really like that part. You don't really get that in, in, in the sequel movie or the prequel movies that really, you only get it in Phantom Menace. Phantom Menace just offers a lot of great things that no other Star Wars movie does. And and Maul and Qui-Gon are a couple of those things. Let me, let me ask, how do you feel about Maul in um in in like Star Wars cartoons and like supplemental material and stuff? Um yeah, I think a lot of the Clone Wars stuff that I really am, I I I kind of do this thing where um I think everyone knows like I watch clips from movies that I like randomly and like a lot of the Clone Wars, I just watch a lot of the scenes or watch just the episodes that Maul's heavily in um in the clone wars and then in rebels as well and they're fucking amazing like i already loved darth maul being the crimson dawn in um solo but like watching him in clone wars and stuff and the way he talks and the way he acts it's just like he's definitely one of the best star wars characters 
because his story and his arc is so fleshed out and has so many ups and downs and his interaction with the bounty hunters and Bo-Katan um, Bo and stuff like that is very cool and it like elevates the phantom menace almost a little bit more for me because like yeah he dies but there's so much more to come and it's kind of crazy to think that there's some people who just write it off as like he's just in this movie and that's it yeah he has become a better character in supplemental material uh there's this one star wars podcast i really love it's called force center and they talk a lot about how star wars especially the movies are all about tip of the iceberg storytelling They'll just give you a, a lot of little things. They'll reference things. They'll have characters that don't have much to do. But um, the iceberg will be uncovered in future things. And they always say, like, you know, to keep that in mind when a character, like, say, Captain Phasma doesn't have a lot to do in a movie. Just wait. Tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Darth Maul is a great example of that. I haven't watched a ton of Clone Wars because I honestly don't love the Clone Wars show. So I've been going through it like slowly. Okay. I do really love Rebels. I like Rebels better personally. And Maul is incredible in Rebels. Um, he's he's a main villain for a lot of it. Um, uh -huh. He has a very interesting relationship with Ezra. And I just love how Maul, again, he just seems like the ninja, the heavy in this movie. But he's revealed to be a very intelligent character, and I love his British accent that he has because he mm -hmm. looks like a demon, but then he talks like a very intelligent British man. Mm -hmm. um, love all that. And I love that that so much of Star Wars is about Sith um, and redemption. And like, you know, Darth Vader is redeemed at the end of his life and such. There's a lot of dark side redemption. Um, and Darth Maul is a character who leaves the Sith mm -hmm. and hates the Sith, but does not leave the dark side and is still a ruthless bastard who just hates the Jedi and the Sith as well. And mm -hmm. um, and that makes him a unique character. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And it, it is an interesting. You talk about like how the way he carries himself in his demeanor. You know, if you know Darth Maul, he's from Darthamir. Like that's his species. That's his, you know, um, where he comes from. And they're very very combat driven they're very much like the spartans of the galaxy and the way he can compose himself and act a certain way almost makes me feel <sighs> sympathetic for him because like his natural way of life like i'm assuming sidious probably kidnapped him or took him from his family or from his because he has a brother um you know asa you know asa not asa uh, What's his name? Uh, Savage and Opress. Yeah, um, that's it. You know, and he's a lot more of a brute. You know, he has like a very um, sophisticated time to be. He's more, he's more brawn than brain at times. And Maul is more the brain. But it it makes me feel sympathetic that the Sith betrayed him or something s super tragic that we don't know about before Phantom Menace had taken place for him to become the Padawan or the. Uh, for uh, or apprentice for Sidious and it makes Sidious feel more cunning and ruthless and scary because of then what you see how Daw or how Maul changes and how Sidious realizes that he's more of a competition in the Clone Wars as a rival Sith and mows him down basically and he becomes tragic and he's trying to find himself in this crazy universe it makes me feel very sympathetic for Maul because it's a very tragic like you said um, ending to him with him finally fighting Obi-Wan again um, in Rebels uh, but yeah, I think that's one part I think of Maul. Like, I didn't know that, like the tip of the iceberg part of it. I really enjoy that. I mean, we get that with Kenobi and Rebels and even with Jedi, um, Fallen Order with like Vader and his, how he fits in, in this world post, um, Revenge of the Sith, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Very mm -hmm. well said. Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah, uh, other than that, I mean, 
I'm trying to, you know, I love the part, like, before we finish it up, but I love the part where Obi-Wan and, and Yoda are talking and they're discussing the fate of Anakin. And then you hear the tragic Vader kind of music playing when he's like, your apprentice, Skywalker, shall be. And you kind of hear that little part of it. There's a lot of really great, like, tie, like like loose ends tied, but, like, also stuff to feed into the prequels later on um, in Phantom Menace. I think it's a really great setup movie that also satisfies a lot of the inter-problems of that movie. Yeah, I, I've heard some people say, you know, some people say when you watch Star Wars, just skip the prequels entirely. Oh, um, my gosh. <laughs> screw that idea. But yeah. some people say, like, just skip Phantom Menace. Like, just get, jump in with Attack of the Clones and, and Ren Sith. That's all you need. And I think that is so horribly wrong. I mean, for one thing, Phantom Menace is an awesome movie. I don't Mm -hmm. know why people don't think it is. There's so much great action. There's so many good characters. It's so much fun. Uh, But also, it sets up for the the entire saga so well. And there's so much important stuff to be mined from it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the stuff that gets pulled on, even in the sequels, uh, sequel trilogy, there's stuff that's pulled from the Phantom Menace. Like, there's reference to that. There's reference to it. There's kind of like... Uh, parallels with it as well. Um, I mean, you hear Qui-Gon in Rise of Skywalker, you know, telling Rey to, to feel the Force. Um, and he's also, is he the first Jedi to live within the Force to become a Force ghost, if I remember, in Kenobi? Like I he was the so. one who was able to unlock that secret. How he was so. able to, I'm not sure, maybe because his connection to the to the spiritual world that way. So, yeah, yeah, maybe so. I, I, I love that ending to Kenobi with seeing Qui-Gon asking what took him so long. I love that part. I, I I went into that show like one of the main things I wanted is I wanted Liam Neeson back. I wanted a Liam Neeson cameo. Very glad we got it. I, I admit I've only watched the final episode once. So I'm I'm actually I've already started rewatching Obi-Wan <laughs> okay. re- recently trying to, you know, come to terms with some things. Mm-hmm. But when he turns around and just says, well, it took you long enough. I was like, ooh, I think I wanted something a little bit more. I don't know, mythic or or cool than just well it took you long enough i don't know like the little comedy beat didn't totally sit well with me but i might just need to live with it longer that's the marvelfication of star wars in some ways guys guess who's right behind us well to be honest and that's another <laughs> thing i realized when i was rewatching the prequels um the the marvel humor it's really the star wars humor <laughs> like they really just lifted it from star wars i, I was especially thinking about that during the first act of Revenge of the Sith, when Obi-Wan and Anakin are bantering back and forth, I was like, well, this is this is what all of Marvel is, pretty much. <laughs> but it's weird that because it's a Star Wars property or a title, um, people are going to criticize it more than with Marvel doing it. You know, that's so weird. Yeah, I think Marvel was like the pretty new toy for a long time, <laughs> but it's not anymore. And I feel people really turning on Marvel at this point. Mm-hmm. It feels weird, not fear. I don't know how to really describe the emotion of when I watch the pre- – we're going, we're going to be rewatching this, the prequels, but watching Phantom and thinking, this is a Disney property now. It feels weird. I, or That's the only word I can really think of. I don't know. Because, like, I guess if – I don't know. It, it just feels like so before corporate Disney, you know, because it was all Lucas films, you know? Yeah, it, it is a little weird that Disney owns Star Wars now, but I have to admit – I, you know, we talk about this. I love the Disney Star Wars stuff. I mean, they're great. Yeah. I do think Lucasfilm, they seem to be doing their own thing. Um, Star Wars doesn't feel the same as all the other Disney stuff. I feel like especially Dave Filoni is keeping the magic with Star Wars. 
yeah, that's pretty well said. Plus, we probably, I mean, but then you also got to think of other things, um, like the literature and like the video games and stuff like that. I love like the old school like Star Wars video games with when it was Lucas Arts, but like I mean. Jedi Fallen Order and the Star Wars Battlefront games, the new ones, I really enjoy those, and they definitely elevate like the the world building even more. Yeah, I'm not a big gamer. I haven't played a lot of the Star Wars games. I played some, but Jedi Fallen Order is by far the best Star Wars game I've ever played. It's amazing. It's probably one of the best, and it, the story part because like for me, I was taking my time because I was like digesting and trying to follow the story. And when I finally beat it, I was like, oh, and like the ending of that is just basically like the ending of Kenobi, which is really awesome um to see <laughs> as true. well um it makes me really enjoy kind of like the world building that disney's putting a lot of effort in you know what i mean like and we get a lot of side character shows and i think that's really cool um i think some people get annoyed that we're getting so many like off side characters like Andor and stuff which i'm excited to go through um like as a prequel show but it's like it's not like they're making like the Watto, you know limited series on disney plus you know it's not like we're getting anything like that. Like, how does Wada become this crime underlord in some way? It's nothing like that. I don't know what the what the big deal is there. Yeah, I, I only recently started Andor because it kicked off in October, and I'm not mm-hmm. watching it in October, so I'm watching it in November. Um, only two episodes in. I like it. It's a lot more serious and grim than a lot of Star Wars. People have sex in it. It's Woo! very unusual for Star Wars. I mean, obviously, people do have sex because people have children, but... <laughs> It's not referenced. It is an Andor. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's interesting. I, I like it so far. I'm only a couple episodes in. I've heard it gets really, really great, though. So I'm looking forward to diving deeper into it. Uh, yeah, me too. Me too. I'm excited um, to get through it, too. Because you get Diego Luna, who's like a pretty big star doing his own show. That's pretty cool. And a He's very a great sp- actor. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but all right. Do you have any uh, last uh, things you want to talk about before we get going on this, then, Daniel? No. I mean, I'll just say the only things I... I really don't like about this movie is I don't care for Anakin being immaculately conceived yeah. and I don't like the fart joke, <laughs> the LP farting in Jar Jar's face. Other than that, even like the dumb Gungan jokes that I know aren't necessarily for me. I'm a big fan. I think it's a really, really fun blockbuster. I think like if every blockbuster were as fun as the Phantom Menace, we <laughs> would be sitting pretty every time we go to the theater. We really would be. Um, yeah. On For me, I mean, I share the same things. I think it's a little odd, but um this movie just kind of gives me a lot of everything that the pre like the, the original trilogy gave me in Star Wars and then adds a lot of new elements to it that I re- think are executed really well. I think on rewatch finally, I think it's going to jump up on my rating my ranking of the movies because it still feels so different from the prequel movies and like, you know, feels more attached to the original trilogies and so- trilogy in some way too. So yeah, I think on rewatch and talking about this, I feel a lot better about the movie more. And also remembered nice. a lot more. The fact that I remember that they added scenes from pod racing and I'm like, God, Chris, how many times have you watched this fucking movie that you actually remember this from years <laughs> ago? Uh, but yeah, I'm really happy with this movie. I think people need to really give this movie another chance. And I think they need to like touch some grass while they watch this movie too and realize it's <laughs> Star Wars. <laughs> Yeah, project it in your backyard. Touch grass while you watch Phantom Menace. <laughs> Ooh, that would be kind of funny. Feel like I mean, Naboo is basically Earth. Like you got to care about Naboo for crying out loud. You absolutely, know? absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and they also have the undersea people like Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and oh. Avatar: The Way of Water. That's very in right now. Ooh, <laughs> that is very in. Um, but yeah. Uh, other than that, Daniel. Hey, man. Thanks for hopping on. I'm excited to go through these prequel movies with you. Absolutely. Always happy to talk Star Wars, man. Yeah, I, I, I can't believe that, we, you know, people had to listen to us talk about Psycho and now they're going to hear us talking about Star Wars prequel movies. It's like, 
I think the internet likes us before we give, give our exodus out of Twitter. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Will Twitter still exist by the time we post this? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. We'll see. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll let the Senate decide. Um, but other than that, Daniel, hey, man, where, where can people find you? I know everyone knows, but just in case new listeners are just tuning in for their annual Star Wars Vember listen, where can we find you? Take a look at the Cobwebs podcast on all those podcast apps. Uh, we are we will be posting episodes every Tuesday in November, the last three Tuesdays at least. We took a little bit of a break after the spooky season. Uh, find us on Twitter and Instagram at Cobwebs Pod. Yes, definitely check that stuff out too. Um, and, you know, it's really good podcast. There's some great stuff there. Um, if you want to follow uh, our Star Wars Vember stuff, we're going to be posting episodes on Fridays um, to kind of give you something to watch over the weekend um, after you listen to us talk about it. And then we're going to be coming back uh, next Friday to talk about all through November, Star Wars Vember. Don't forget to hashtag it. Where we're going to talk about um, Christopher Lee and the Attack of the Clones, which I'm very excited to. A very Codwebs-like episode. Uh, but other than that, Daniel, thanks for hopping on, man. Um, and for those who are listening, don't forget to follow Inside the Sequel on Twitter at SequelPod. Email the show at SequelPod at gmail.com. Follow me at Hurtastic underscore Chris on Twitter as well. Uh, but other than that, if you aren't watching The Phantom Menace, do you really care about Star Wars? Other than that, may the Force be with you. 